Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Shabbat Shalom. In the wake of the horrific events of October the 7th and following, the language of this morning's Torah reading pulsates with urgency and relevance. And the earth became corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. In Hebrew, the word is Hamas. And God said to Noah, I've decided to put an end to all life, for the earth is filled with this Hamas. I will destroy them and the earth. A generation notorious for its violence, lawlessness, and lack of a moral rudder. An image that could describe our own time. So too, God's decision to flood the world for its sins, raising thorny questions of proportionality, collective punishment, the death of innocence, questions on the docket of Israel and this world today. Wicked as they were, one wonders whether every human being, every living being, was deserving of death. Okay, one might say, punish the bad ones, maybe even wipe them out, but wipe out everyone? As Abraham pleads to God in two weeks from now, when the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah is hanging in the balance, surely you will not sweep away the innocent along with the guilty. But in the case of Noah, that's exactly what God does. The violence of Hamas met with crushing and collective punishment, a punishment which, the careful reader will note, does not unto itself ultimately do away with the problem of evil itself. As God reflects post-deluge, the ways of the human heart are evil from their very beginnings. All that death and destruction and the net benefit of it all, an open question to this very day. It's not easy to write a sermon in the midst of crisis, knowing that the time from the time of writing to the time of delivering, the facts on the ground may have changed and are likely not altogether known. When I pressed print on the sermon, the tanks of the Israeli Defense Forces were lining up at the Gaza border. Border communities in the north and the south were evacuating, and if they had not done so, if they had not done so already, and tensions, regional and global, were rising with every passing second. For those of us with family members in the IDF, the phone calls home have been made. The next point of communication and contact, unknown and uncertain. I assume that Israel's ground invasion of Gaza will begin immediate, imminently if it has not happened already. This is not the beginning of the war. This war began, and this is a critical point to which we must return to again and again and again, on October 7th when Hamas savagely attacked Israel 
murdering 1,300 innocents, wounding thousands, and taking some 200 men, women, seniors, children, babies hostage, families burned alive, women raped, children and parents slaughtered before each other's eyes. On October 7th, Israel was viciously assaulted. Hamas attacking not just Israel, not just Jews, but all of humanity. No matter what the world says, we must always remember that what is happening or imminently happening is not the first stage of a war, but the response to October 7th. What Israel is doing or is about to do, no different than after America was attacked at Pearl Harbor or America at 9-11, what any country would do if attacked as savagely as Israel was. And the battlefront for this war is not just in the Middle East. It's in our schools, campuses, workspaces, news media, social media, platforms around the globe. We're searching for the language to counter the claims of far too many that Israel is the aggressor, or those who would and will question Israel's right to take military action. This morning, I want to provide you with a few tools, some vocabulary, so you're prepared for this next stage, for the moral deluge to come, a rabbinical or moral lexicon to think about the ethics of waging war, what philosophers from Augustine to Aquinas to Michael Walter to Rabbi Elliot Dorff refer to as just war theory. War is horrible, but sometimes, and this is such a time, it's necessary. And in this hour of necessity, it is not only fair, but it's actually our obligation to ask if there is a way in all the horror by which Israel's aims can be both achieved and characterized to the world as justified. When having a conversation on just war theory, the discussion falls into two categories. First, questions as they relate to the initiation of war. And second, questions as they relate to the conduct of war itself. To the first category, the terms by which war is morally justified, Israel, as noted, did not initiate this war. The first obligation of any state or sovereign authority, Israel or otherwise, is to ensure the safety and security of its citizens, be they at home or at risk in foreign territory. These obligations are altogether consistent with Jewish law. Building on Exodus 22.1 regarding the right of a homeowner to self-defense should a thief break in. The Talmud teaches that if someone comes to kill you, rise up to kill them first. According to Jewish law, a nation has not just the right, but the obligation to defend itself against actual attacks and against anticipated attacks. It was a great 12th century codifier of Jewish law, Moses Maimonides, who gave fullest expression to the different categories of war, which for the purposes of today, will divide into two, wars of choice, Melchemet Reshut, and wars of obligation, Melchemet Chovah. The former category 
discretionary wars is somewhat narrow. It includes efforts to enlarge a nation's territory or prestige. The latter category includes those wars conducted in self-defense. In Maimonides' words, to deliver Israel from an enemy who has attacked them, or to do so preemptively so Israel's enemies will not march against them. Judaism is not a pacifist religion. We do not stand idly by when our brother's blood is shed, nor when the life of one of our kin is at risk, what is referred to as the laws of Rodef, the obligation to intervene to stop a pursuer from killing another person. Any nation, all the more so a Jewish nation, is permitted, if not obligated, to defend itself. It's an obligation that takes on increased urgency when the matter of civilian hostages is added to the equation. The mitzvah of pikuach nefesh, of saving a life, taking precedence over all else. The commandment to redeem captives, in Hebrew, pidyon shvuyim, considered a paramount mitzvah in Jewish law and ethics, as seen in next week's Torah reading when Abraham goes to war to rescue Lot and his family, or in 1976 when Israel rescued the hostages in Entebbe, or if you like, in 79 with our own country's failed attempt to rescue the hostages in Iran. So great is this obligation that it falls not on any individual, but on the entire community. There is a rich literature of the heavy ransoms paid by pre-modern Jewish communities when one of their own was taken captive. Self-defense, anticipatory self-defense, defense against future attacks, the obligation to save Jewish lives hanging in the balance long before October 7th. These principles have been well established in our sources to identify the circumstances by which war is morally justified. And in the wake of October 7th, they continue to serve as our North Star. The fact that world opinion in just a few short days has turned Israel from victim to aggressor is a subject to which we must respond immediately and will undoubtedly consume energy from all of us into the future. But this morning in this sanctuary, let there be no doubt. Let our moral clarity steal our resolve and that of our children and our grandchildren. Israel was attacked, brutally so. Israel has not only a right, but an obligation to defend itself. Israel has an obligation to do everything in its power to redeem the hostages. Israel has an obligation to its citizens that they dwell in safety, that the horrors of October 7th never be allowed to happen again. It is not complicated. And anyone who tells you that it is needs to have their own views interrogated as to why they are holding the state of the Jews to a standard different than they would any other nation. As for the second category, the ethics of the conduct of war, here too, Jewish law offers much guidance. Maimonides teaches that when one is besieging a city, those conducting the siege may surround on three sides, but not on four, presumably that the refugees seeking to save their own lives can escape. Nachmanides, writing a century later, taught that one must deal kindly with the enemy, 
the enemy themselves, and even the trees of the enemy's fields. There's a fascinating passage regarding our patriarch Jacob's anticipated but never actualized battle with the camp of his brother Esau. Jacob is described in the Torah as both afraid and distressed. The 16th century rabbi, the Maharal of Prague, asks the question, why two adjectives? Why both afraid and distressed when one adjective would have been enough? The Maharal answers his question explaining that Jacob was afraid for his own safety and he was distressed at the thought that the anticipated battle may force him to take the life of another. Even when it comes to redeeming captives, as did Jacob's sons when their sister Dina was abducted, the moral judgment of the Bible counsels against excessive bloodlust. Enemy lives are not worth more or less than Jewish lives. We are all created equally in the image of God. You may recall the famous rabbinic midrash of God castigating the liberated Israelites who sang as their Egyptian oppressors drowned in the sea behind them. Abnormal evil is not countered by more evil, but by an affirmation of what it means to be a human being created in the image of God, the very thing that makes life worth living and Israel worth defending. As Jews, we dare not let the inhuman actions inflicted on us prompt us to lose our own humanity. All of which leaves us, Israel, with a series of difficult choices. Again, the question is not whether Israel has a right to defend itself. It does. The question is whether Israel will be smart and moral in this war of obligation. Will Israel make sure the medicine does not cause more harm than the illness? The extent of the war, the duration of the war, the purposes of the war, the number of lives that will be lost in order to save other lives, Israel must perform the impossible balancing act of self-defense, seeking to secure its borders, limiting the death of its own soldiers and innocent civilians, redeeming hostages, and pursuing peace. This is not 1973 when, or any other conventional war, fought on an open battlefield by opposing sides and tanks and military uniforms. The best Israel can do is what it's always done, make the best imperfect decisions based on the information it has, knowing that any decision it makes will come at a heavy cost. And while it goes without saying, I will say it anyway, this entire discussion is made that much more complex by dint of the fact that in Hamas, Israel is fighting an enemy that does not follow any laws of warfare, that has proven itself barbaric beyond words, whose very tactics are, by design, lacking in humanity. What Israel understands, and what we here in this room understand, but what the world at large seems to fail to understand, is that Hamas neither represents nor serves the interests of the Palestinians, but just the opposite. In commingling civilian populations, in stealing humanitarian aid, in its willingness to use Palestinian civilians as human shields, in placing military assets under hospitals and schools, in cutting off access to escape or relief, it is Hamas that is responsible 
for the death of civilian Palestinians for a host of reasons, from sheer ignorance to more nefarious. When it comes to war conduct, not only is the brutality of Hamas overlooked, but Israel is being held to a different standard than any other nation, a difference which, if you peel away at the onion, betrays an anti-Semitism in its suggestion that Jewish lives are worth less than other lives. It's a realization as uncomfortable as it is clarifying. And in our moral clarity, once again, our resolve is made firm. The final thing I want to say about just war theory is that Maimonides, Nachmanides, the Maharal of Prague, and so many others had both the curse and the blessing of contemplating an ethics of war prior to 1948, when the Jewish people were exiled, persecuted, and powerless. For all of them, this was just a mental exercise. Thank God. Thank God. We have the problems we do, that the Jewish people have a sovereign state and an army and are able to fight a war and debate how to do it justly. Given the choice of these difficult decisions or the moral purity of exiled victimhood, I would choose the former over the latter any day and so should you. It is actually at the foundation of what this fight is all about the right of Jews to self-determination. The decisions of the coming days, weeks, and maybe months will be tortured. Sometimes Israel will get it right, and sometimes Israel will get it wrong. But it is the very fact that Israel is, unlike the other side, asking these questions, which is what makes us who we are and what makes Israel worth defending in Israel and around the globe. May the soldiers of the IDF be victorious in their just cause. May we arm ourselves with the vocabulary, the advocacy, and the strength to defend their cause, wherever they may be and wherever we may be. And may we all arrive soon in our day at the vision of the prophet, of every person sitting in peace under their own vine and their own fig tree, with no one to make them afraid. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah.